This is KEXU 96.1 FM, Paul People's Revolutionary Radio. I'm JV, and you're listening to Free Aslan. And today we have a very good show. Um, and um, before I get into the show, I just want to um, talk briefly um, about, um, you know, what's going on in the prisons. And, you know, there, there's... You know, prisoners are continuing to um, hunger strike and, you know, they are, um, you know, going off and on hunger strikes in the Alabama prison system, you know, and they're fighting against solitary confinement. That's something that California prisoners have um, fought and continue to fight for because um, although we dealt a blow to the state in the 2011, 2000. 13 um, hunger strikes um, they continue solitary confinement continues to uh, continues to exist uh, the thing is you know they can't keep people for years and decades no more in California prisons in solitary however um, you know they can keep people for shorter times and you know not one day is good enough we're not going to stop fighting until um, solitary confinement is banned for good. And, um, you know, so that's something that's continuing to be um, a struggle uh, behind enemy lines. And that's what the prisons are. They're, you know, that's behind enemy lines. Those are concentration camps that are built uh, simply to enforce national oppression. On the most, in California, um, you know, they use these solitary con concentration camps mostly on the Chicano Nation, on imprisoned Aslan, and, you know, throughout the, these false U.S. borders and concentration camps um, throughout the United Snakes, um, you know, they uh, use prisons, con um, concentration camps, uh, mostly on Chicano Nation, Poriqua, um, New Africa, and um, on the other oppressed nations, peoples. And um, so this is a war, it's definitely a war. And um, we have to start thinking of it as a war and, and not just as um, being tough on crime because um, that's all code words, you know, tough on crime. We know what it is. It's, it's a war on poor people, a war on the oppressed nations, people uh, within these false U.S. borders. So it's very important we understand our social reality, what we're dealing with in order to find ways and tools to fight against what is occurring and, um, you know, encountering some of the things, uh, the assault um, that's taking place on people um, throughout this country. So with that being said, um, I got a special guest today. Uh, I'm going to be interviewing uh, Jen Laskin. Um, you know, she's a teacher. She's an organizer, and uh, she's also an attorney, and, um, you know, um, this is a very special um, interview, and there's a little story behind it, and it's going to be very good, but let me just welcome Jen. Are you there? I am here. Hello. Hello, and welcome to Free Aslan. Thank you. <laughs> 
So, you know, like I was telling the listeners, you know, there's there's a little story behind it. So, you know, uh, you know, I me and Jen first crossed paths when I was um, held in the concentration camp up in Pelican Bay Shoe. And, you know, I was doing various activities, writing articles, doing various um, things while I was imprisoned. And, and you know, um, even though I was held, in, held there in, in torturous uh, solitary confinement, I continued to struggle and I continued to find ways to, um, you know, to resist. And I seen it, um, you know, I seen it um, as it was, as an attack on, on me and um, everybody else uh, held in that concentration camp. So I, I, I did a lot of different things. One of the things I did was I used to reach out to various, <coughs> excuse me, various organizations. And um, one of the organizations I reached out to was the Watsonville Brown Berets. And, um, and you know, um, at the time, Jen was, um, you know, um, she was living there and um, very involved in that organization. And, um, you know, in involving her prison outreach, you know, she would send various materials to prisoners, uh, myself included. And, you know, these were educational uh, materials and, you know, historical um, material. And, you know, it, it was very, very good because... You know, it's very difficult to get, um, you know, literature pertaining to the Chicano Nation uh, in the, um, a concentration camp like Pelican Bay. And, you know, the people in there, uh, Rasa in there, are basically starving for education that pertains to them and, and the struggles that their people have been continuous, uh, continuously uh, engaged in. So... You know, a lot of the material coming in, I would read it, I would learn from it, and I would share with others, other prisoners, uh, with my study group that I had in there. And, you know, and a lot of people would learn from this material, and it was very, very helpful in what we were trying to do um, in, in raising consciousness behind enemy lines. So, you know, that's how I crossed paths with uh, Jen. And, and, you know, I never got to tell you, so I'm telling you now, Jen, thank you. I really appreciate the work mm -hmm. you did. It was very, very helpful, and it meant a lot um, because there's a lot of organizations that do not reach into the prisons. And so, you know, I just want to say thank you for, for extending that hand. It was my pleasure <laughs> to make your acquaintance. Mm, okay. And receive your artwork, mm. which to this day hangs in my classroom oh, from east to west. Wow. Inspiring students mm. and imparting, um, imparting powerful political messages mm. at every, just at every glance. So I appreciate you too. Oh, thank you. That's a very kind of you. And, um, you know, let me just say, um, you know, let me start with the first question, you know, um, and, you know, it, it surrounds your work in Watsonville. That's the community that, you know, you began to work um, within the Chicano Nation. And, and, and so let me just ask you, um, can you tell us about your role in the Watsonville Brown Berets? <clears throat> so um, I met the Watsonville Brown Berets around 2003 in the street. They were... Oops. They were organizing. Um, we were 
at that time, they were organizing around driver's licenses for immigrants. And I was looking for a group that was organizing with youth. I was new to California. I was not familiar with Chicano politics quite yet. I had just moved out there from the East Coast. So when I met the Washington Brown Berets, I was inspired and I was impressed because it was just all young people organizing for themselves, organizing for their community, organizing in the street. They were very skilled organizers. And they were really about just being being there and supporting what needed to be done in, in those moments. And they were they were youth led. They ran their own meetings. They had um, education sessions every every week. They met every single week from ninety six up until even today. They're still meeting. Wow. Um, so I was very inspired by this this group of young people. And I was teaching at that time in Watsonville. I was teaching in the alternative high school at a school called Renaissance High School. So I was really looking for a place that I could, you know, kind of bring students to or refer students to who were looking to be politically engaged. Mm. What ended up happening is I myself joined the organization and became politically engaged along with many of my students. Mm. And as you know, I was I was just a member of the organization. I. Um, you know, helped run, helped organize meetings, use whatever um, whatever resources I I could bring to the table to get space for events, to raise funds, to put on different um, different activities, um, scholarships, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, I've met a, quite a few uh, prisoners that way. Was able to do. Um, in reach and, and behind those walls, as you say, behind enemy lines. And um, what I found through the Watsonville Brown Berets was that there was a lot of people organizing behind the walls as well. And so I tried as best as I could to remain you know, connected to folks and just serve however I could. And so a lot of uh, jailhouse lawyers and jailhouse teachers would reach out to me and ask for different materials and how do you plan a lesson, and how do you teach people to read? I got all kinds of different questions. So I just tried my best to, um, you know, do what I could to provide resources and information because the California prison system um, is it's a terrible institution, hmm. and but it does, not, um, it, it does not squash the human spirit. And so I, I remain to this day very inspired by people who are who keep their dignity intact in those conditions. Mm. And so with the berets, um, I was able to to make networks and inroads, and, and, and also connect with people across the state of California. In Watsonville, we were an autonomous chapter, and so we really didn't um, we weren't part of a any kind of national network or anything like that. There were many other autonomous chapters that popped up and organized, um, you know, after and, and while we were organizing. So we, we were in alliance with all of the other chapters, but there was not any kind of power structure that, that connected everybody. We were autonomous chapters that organized on the same principles, which was the liberation of oppressed people and the liberation of, of poor people in, in this society. And that's what we did. 
Mm. And I and I think autonomy is good, you know, um, for this stage that we're in. And of course, at some stage, um, there's gonna be, um, there's gonna have to be um, a coming together of um, of the oppressed nations at some point. But I, I, you know, I do agree we're not at that stage right now because um, um, should people organize on, you know, um, a mass scale from you know one organization from California to New York at this point. Um, it would be crushed and dismantled by the state. We've seen in the past what they've yeah. done. So we can't, you know, for security reasons, I, I agree with that at this stage. And, you yep. know, at some point, though, you know, um, there is going to be a need for a political party. Um, I, I, in my opinion, that um, every society that's ever liberated itself has always had a political party at the helm. And, and, and those who have not, have not really um, mobilized an entire country um, for many decades and many years. So I think, you know, but we're not there yet, and, and I agree. But something you said earlier that you started off trying to, um, you know, you, you were organizing, and then you began to learn uh, from the people, and that's very interesting because a lot of times we start off trying to help uh certain people and then they end up helping us in the process you know and that's kind of how learning um is you know chairman mile talked about from the masses to the masses um you know and 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 that's the concept that he came up with is that you know we learn from the people and then you know um and this goes for organizations cadre organizations political parties movements um, anytime people are organized in an organized fashion, um, they might set out to um, educate the masses. But um, you know, Mao talked about well, you you know, you you learn from the masses and what their what level they're at and what they're struggling for at that particular time, and then you try to um, you know harness that in a in a certain way, synthesize it, and then you give it back to them. And so it's from the masses to the masses, and you continue this process of learning from each other until um, the right um, formula is, is created. It's just um, one of them things where we constantly have to learn from the people um, that we work with, and we're always learning. Even you, you're, you're an educator. I'm sure that you learn from the students, even though they're, they're young people, you, you still, you're teaching them, but you're learning from them as well. And, and, and it must be a very beautiful experience um, being a teacher as well. But, um, yeah. yeah, and, you know, um, one of the things that I remember is um, hearing about you working with another organization in uh, Santa Cruz, and um and and that organization is um barrios unidos I'm, I'm very very interested in this organization because they do a lot of things they you know they're an independent institution um they do a lot of indigenous work uh rasa work it's mm -hmm. just a beautiful thing that they're doing they have um you know they're self-sufficient they're doing a lot of different things over there so i wanted to ask you you know um you know, that you worked with Barrios Unidos in Santa Cruz. So what was that like? Yeah. So Barrios Unidos, BU, has been around a long time. 
And um, they, they're a really wonderful organization. They function like a, you know, like a non, they're a nonprofit organization. They, um, you know, fund themselves on grants and fundraising and things like that. They have a building where uh, events happen, meetings happen. They have land where they do have indigenous ceremony and they hold retreats and things like that. The thing that I always found with BU um, were, you know, mentors. Mentors, resources, they always have their doors open, particularly um, their founder, Nane Alejandro. Um, Nane's held that organization together for a long time. It's not easy um, to, you know, to sustain an organization. Like he actually told me many years ago, um, it's easy to start an organization and a project. It's hard to sustain it. Mm. It really, really is. Mm. And so they, you know, they, they've done that. They have a t-shirt printing company. Um, they're now in the process of creating a small, tiny home community on the property. I was actually there last week. I was out in California took a tour of the space, spent some time with Nane, and, um, you know, they, they remain dedicated to, you know, providing, providing support and resources for people. Um, and right now, you know, there's a housing crisis, there's a money crisis in California. Um, it's hard to get enough money to live no matter pretty much what, no matter what you're doing. I know, it's crazy. Um, yeah, and so... BU has done a really nice job at, you know, kind of reorganizing their space. Um, They receive a lot of of in-kind donations from um, big, you know, stores and Costco and places like that. And then in turn, they sort of just turn that over to the community Mm. in, um, you know, they have free days and days where people can go pick up their doing now food distributions. Mm. I think once or twice a week, even, Wow. um, I was out there couches and, you know, just all kinds of stuff that they're able to, to, to get and, um, you know, reappropriate to the people. Mm. And I think in a society like the United States where there's so much stuff, that reappropriation is a part of our work, you mm. know, because um, it's, it's it's like the Robin. The, I, I always think of like Robin Hood, you know, <laughs> where yeah. you you know you, you take the take those resources and take those things and then redistribute them amongst the people, so that then the people can utilize those resources to reorganize themselves um, on their own terms, right? Mm. And um, and BU does that, you know, they're they're in the um, they're, they go into the juvenile halls. They run circles in the juvenile halls. They also have a prison project. And I think the BU prison project is probably, for me, it's, it's a really one of the coolest projects that BU does because there aren't many organizations that have been going into the prisons consistently for 20 years, yeah. 25 years. And um, BU does. You know, they, they have a... They have a, a standing program that they do in Soledad. I've actually been in Soledad with them. Oh, wow. They they have a college program that they're running with John Brown Professor John Brown's child. Mm. They have a transcommunality course that they offer, a Kingian nonviolence course that they offer, all in Soledad, you know? Mm. And um 
Nani's been working with the wardens and with, you know, the, the, the state for a long time just to get some, you know, reforms and changes up in those, in those, uh, behind those walls. And it's just tragic because report after report, and I see the same thing in D.C., same thing in California. Anytime they do an audit or a review of these institutions and these facilities, it always comes out that the community organizations are doing the best work. You know, look at the volunteer program in San Quentin. Um, You know, look at um, the prison project in in Soledad. And it's it's not easy. Same at D.C. jail did a, a huge audit um, in 2012, and they found the same thing. The best program was that was running for the youth tried as adults, which is really my has become my, one of my areas of I guess expertise. Um, was Free Minds Book Club? Free Minds Book Club mm-hmm. was a couple of teachers going in to help kids uh, write poetry. You know, while they were awaiting trial in the in the adult jails. And the report that the D.C. jail put out said that, yes, Free Minds Book Club is doing the best job in here of any other program and that they should be in charge of all of the, um, you know, programming for the for the inmates. Mm. Um, and lo and behold, they didn't get those contracts. You know, uh. <laughs> they didn't get any. Uh, Free Minds Book Club founders were not instantly made the wardens of the jail, as they probably should have been. Um, you know, they just kept doing what they do. Um, on a you know on a dime really mm. literally ten cents yeah. and um, and they continue to this day and now they're in Baltimore City and I think they're in Denver you know they've definitely Free Minds Book Club has definitely been able to expand um, you know but but it's it's not where it should be you know and it, mm. it's just ironic and and infuriating that again and again you find those organizations that that do this work and then uh, even. You know, the, the, the secretary of the CDCR was, um, was asking Nane uh, just a few weeks ago, what are we going to do about the violence in, you know, these prisons? And I mean, what wow. are we going to do? Wow. <laughs> what are we going to do? Wow. Um, because now, as you, I'm sure you know, they're, they're you know, integrating the yards and oh, they're moving yeah. uh, different units and different uh, organizational uh, affiliated people to different uh, places. And trying to mix everybody up so that they'll just get along, you mm. know. Yeah, <laughs> so and and it's actually quite a gladi- plan. It's actually gladiator fights is what they're doing, you know. I have it's, I it's have horrible. heard that, and that I, my understanding is that the plan is, um, you know, to, that they'll they'll just get tired that they'll they'll fight and fight and fight, and then eventually they'll just get along. And, yeah. and I've heard that from a few people because I've asked, like, what is the strategy here of just integrating everybody? And yeah. that's what they said. Well, they just figure that eventually people will get along, and mm. that is not what's happening. No. Um, from my what I what I know, yeah. um, but the last thing, the prison project is also really good um, about receiving mail from inmates and then writing back with zines or resources. Um, you know, they do the best they can to provide people with information so that you know when they're when they're coming out or about to come out. They they have some some resources and some contacts to go to go through, um, and yeah. I I want to just say the last thing when I was in Soledad I think it was maybe two summers ago with them I actually got to sit with the organizers the the inmate organizers of the prison project yeah so you can imagine you know we're at the table it's you know one of the assistant wardens myself. Nane, um, and then maybe 
maybe six or seven inmates, and these are solid lifers in Soledad. So they were, mm. Some of them were, you know, anywhere from 40 to 66 or even 70 years old. Mm. And the way these men carried themselves was so incredible. Um, you, if they hadn't been in the, the, the orange jumpsuits, I mean, they carried themselves like partners in law firms or like CEOs of, of, you know, companies. I mean, just dignified, serious, skilled negotiators, organizers. Um, and it was, it was really touched me to be in the room like that with folks because I had, you know, if, unless you're in prison or you work in a prison, you don't get to be in those spaces very often. And it just reaffirmed my belief that, um, you know, prisons are vile, warehousing humans is not the answer, and it does nothing good for anybody, and the only good thing there, or the only good thing I see, is that it, it just makes the human spirit shine brighter, mm. you know, and that was, that was my takeaway from that. Yeah, and that's beautiful when, um, mm. you know, you see resistance from something that's, you know, very oppressive and repressive so that's a that's a very good thing but um you know you you talk you you did make a good point about um you know how how good that these organizations are you know doing such a good job and even though they're doing it within the boundaries of the state so you know and 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 they're making so much progress in the prisons with these classes and with these you know these circles and the sweat and all this stuff but they're doing it um within you know the boundaries of of, of the state of the of the basically of the oppressor nation because that's mm -hmm. basically what the state is is uh the oppressor nation but so they're doing it within these boundaries um and just imagine um the progress and the rehabilitation that we could uh, make if and we could create and promote uh, if we weren't under an oppressor nation. So that just tells you if we were if we were in power, if we had a people's government, if we had, um, you know, we had our own institutions and government um, here of the leaps and bounds that we would make as a people in really rehabilitating our own and 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 that just shows you you know we're doing it within you know there's these organizations doing it within the guidelines within you know even in the prisons themselves there's these you know secret uh, study groups because studying um your own history and revolutionary theory is illegal in prison and, and that's why you know george jackson's books are banned from prison that's why you know the beautiful book Chicano power and the struggle for Aslan is banned in the entire state of Texas. The entire Texas prison system banned that book, Chicano Power and the Struggle for Aslan. So they do not want you to learn your own history. They don't want us to learn political theory. They don't want us to learn how to liberate ourselves and organize our communities, even if our communities are prisons. They don't want us to learn that stuff because it goes against the state. You know, it, our interests always go against the state because the state doesn't have our interests in mind. So it just it, it's a beautiful thing when you think of 
um, the possibilities of how far we would go had we not had to work within these bound boundaries and these you know but let me um but let me get to the next question um you know when you were in Khalifa Islam you know I'm very um or even now you know what were some of the the work that you did surrounding mass imprisonment whether when you were here in Khalifa's or in the east coast what are some of the things that you're you know, involved with when it comes to mass imprisonment? So, um, you know, just, I, I do imagine what it would be like if, if people were able to organize themselves, uh, you know, on their own terms. And, um, it's, it's inspiring and it's heartbreaking because yes, you're right. We, we wouldn't have all these problems if we were just able to, you know, to, to flourish, right? If the human spirit yeah. was truly allowed to flourish without those walls. And that's why they lost all these beautiful black and brown men up, right? Mm. Is um, because of the threat. And we know that, you know, that's nothing you or probably many of your listeners don't know. So what have I been doing around mass incarceration? I mean, for me, it's, it's real. It's like one, you know, one inmate at a time. I'm not much of a policy person, um, you know, especially being out here now in D.C., I have, you know, um, I'm around policy people more, the, the, you know, organizations and the, I don't know, different different think tanks and whatever, uh, you know, coalitions and um, coalitions for juvenile justice and blah, 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 all of those. Um, I, I really have always just been like a person-to-person type of organizer. So what I've done around mass incarceration is what I've what I continue to do. What I've always done is just reach behind those walls to individuals to 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 support the individuals in in their own you know liberation and then liberating other people liberating other people. Um, what what started me off was in um, started me even understanding the juvenile justice system because that's where it started for me was with the juvenile justice system and with the California Youth Authority. I'd met a student in 2003 who came out of the California Youth Authority to my classroom. He was tattooed, you know, head to toe. Um, he was very gang, uh, his mentality was very gang affiliated um, and he was only 16. And so he ended up, like you talk about learning a lot from students. I've learned 90% of what I know from students mm. and I continue to be very open. I give my students um, surveys on me at the end of every semester and I ask them to be very honest, you know, very just what is it, you know, what can I do better? What is it that I say that offends you? What is it mm. that I say that helps you? You know, and so I am constantly doing that um, and I tell them, you know, unless you want to hurt my feelings and if you want to, you will but there's really nothing that you can say that's going to hurt my feelings if it's constructive, you know? Yeah. And I think kids being able to have that relationship with an adult helps them be like just better people um, and helps them reflect more because they understand that their opinion is valued. So in terms of what I've done around mass incarceration, I mean, just one, one Chicano at a time, you know? <laughs> and so meeting, meeting this one, this one young man in 2003 uh, kind of followed his struggle through California Youth Authority, um, he did end up getting locked back up, going to prison. Um, I, you know, kind of stuck with his 
with his case. And then through him, I was able to understand what the mentality is that drives young men and women. But I was really working with young men at the time um, to be in and out of these institutions, to not be able to break the cycles, you know, just to kind of click up in the first place. But then I was also able to see on the outside in the community how the police treated the um, young Chicanos in the in the streets of Watsonville, Santa Cruz, you know, where I was living, um, particularly um, kids on probation, parents on probation. Um, the police were just horrible. You know, and they were um, taking kids in, locking them up. I became very familiar with the 186.22 gang enhancement laws. Mm. And was horrified at how those laws really function to create job security for the uh, California Peace Officers Association and how they um, really stop the prisons from ever, ever emptying. Right. And what I saw was while California, you know, I was out there from 2003 to 2012. So I really watched like all of the court cases come up against the state of California prison system. I watched the fed, it go into federal receivership almost, um, you know, the three judge panel, uh, certain uh, judge Henderson, um, panel came down and ruled that the prison system had to do some major, uh, changes or else they were going to be taken over. Um, and what I saw was that while the prison system and the California legislature made some moves, um, you know, SB 280, the Youthful Offenders Act, they made some moves to release some people, but they were also clamping down on perceived gang members mm -hmm. and really ramming up, um, you know, the 25 to life sentences, the three strikes you're out, um, giving kids like one adult strike as part of a plea deal. So setting kids up at the age of like 16, mm. you know, we'll try you as, an, as a juvenile, but we're going to give you one adult strike. Mm. Um, so then the kid offends when they're 19 and now they have two strikes, you mm. know, and then um, it, was, it, was, it was like a terrible path and it really felt like a setup. And when you see so many pretty decent kids being set up like that over a period, you know, I was out there over 10 years. Um, it's, it's infuriating. So I became involved with like critical resistance. I became involved with the committee to mm. free Chip Fitzgerald. Chip was the longest held Black Panther. Um, he's still locked up to this day. He was locked up at the age of 18 in 1969. He's over 65 now. He's 69. So, you know, he's that, that old, yeah, <laughs> that old yeah. man, 70. Um, he's still locked up. He was just, um, got denied parole again a few years ago. Mm. Um, and so he's still trying to parole out, even though his sentence you know, came up for the first time in 72. Um, so I became involved like by learning about the, the Black Liberation Movement, the movement for Chicano liberation, by learning about political prisoners, by learning from political prisoners like yourself. Um, mm. A few other folks up there in Pelican Bay ended up finding me. You know, because of the work I was doing with this one student um, many years ago in California Youth Authority, the word kind of got out that there was this teacher who worked with gang members. <laughs> mm -hmm. And so I was getting, and then, you know, we were doing like rallies. We started the California um, Coalition Against Gang Enhancements. And so that got a little bit of press. And I guess people were sending that news articles into the facilities. 
And so I was getting, you know, just random letters, people just asking for, you know, just saying good job. You know, it's great to read somebody like cares about us. So letters of like, thanks mm. all the way up to, you know, just letters of advice, letters like um, asking about the fourth amendment. You know, I mean, I got some very interesting mm -hmm. uh, correspondence and then people, um, you know, just asking for information, right. Information mm. about the history so what I would do, and I probably did this for you as well, you know, I would just photocopy things I was teaching in my classroom, and I would just make packets. And Absolutely. Send them into and the, those are so good. They work the so good. They work <laughs> so... Because, you know, in many ways, um, the prisoners, a lot of them never went to high school. So mm -hmm. you, you might have somebody 30 years old, 35 years old, they never went to high school. Me, myself, uh -huh. I mean, I went up to the seventh grade. I wow. never went to high. I never went to I never went to a high school. So many of the uh, lumpen youth, I'd like to call lumpen youth, and it's basically those who grow up in the street. You know, those you know they they're labeled as gang members, but we know the police and the military are the biggest gangs in the world. But you know they're na labeled gang members. They're labeled criminals. And these are the people that are filled the prisons, and, and most people never went to high school. So the packets that you had were actually perfect because um, they were very basic, and they explained mm -hmm. history in a very good way. They had very good questions, basic questions, and it was perfect for the, the population in there. So, yeah, that, that, that really worked very, very well. Yeah, that was the goal. That was the goal, and that's what I use with my own students for many years because you know i was teaching alternative education in an alternative educational setting so i had 17 year olds reading in a second or third grade reading level mm. so i had to really highlight mark up kind of outline readings for for students in a way that they could then like kind of self like self educate right yes. um diction we use dictionaries all of that so yeah mm. glad that was helpful oh yeah Wonderful. And let me let me get to the next question, though. Um, you know, you moved to the East Coast. So, you know, some of the listeners might be hearing you and hearing your your efforts in California and in Watsonville and you're doing all this stuff. And then you move to the East Coast. So what you know, what was that about? Well, why, why? Why was it important to move to the East Coast? I came to the East Coast to go to law school in 2012. Mm. That was the only reason I left California. Wow. Um, yeah, I, I wanted to, um, after, after teaching for a while, I became involved in the California Federation of Teachers. I was very involved in my teachers union. Whoop, whoop. I love the CFT. I miss it <laughs> terribly. Actually, pretty radical union. Um, and so I, um, yeah, I was involved with like lots of things involving the law. I was working with these students who were, you know, dealing with uh, cases. I was working with their lawyers and working with union lawyers and kind of getting, I, I really did not like where California education was. Mm -hmm. um, I could not barely sustain myself on it anymore. And it was becoming very frustrating. So I thought um, I need a better um tool you know as an activist i felt like as an activist sometimes we're just screaming or yelling or talking and i just wanted to be i wanted another tool at the table and so that tool that i decided to pursue was the um the tool of litigation of threat and being able to threaten litigation and so the only way you can 
truly threaten litigation is with a law license. You know, you can get a law degree, mm. but then you need that law license to actually be able to walk into court. Right. And so I um, started doing some research, and I found, um, you know, I wanted to find a law school that focused on social justice that wasn't too expensive. And I found the University of the District of Columbia, David A. Clark School of Law, which is um, right here in D.C. It's your federal public, federally funded public law school. It was initially the Antioch School of Law, which was the first law school to ever implement clinical education in um, a law school. So this was the first law school that actually helped low-income people or indigent people with their legal um, issues. Um, this was the first, these were the first legal clinics, you know, wow. this was before legal aid at uh, Antioch, you know, right. this was in the seventies. The founder was Edgar Kahn. He became my mentor. Uh, I TA'd for him even after law school. I wow. with Dr. Kahn. He was amazing. He's 85 now. Wow. And, um, so I found this law school in DC. I, I didn't tell anybody I was applying. I applied. I took the LSAT. I did it all in the down low. Because it's one of those things, you know, you tell people and everybody's did you get in? Did you get in? Are you going? Yeah, and yeah, I yeah. Just, yeah, I <laughs> just needed to do it. I was terrified. I didn't even know really. I didn't know what the bar exam was. I really didn't know what law school was going to entail. But I knew yeah. that I needed to, to do something else. You know, I just needed a better better weapon. Right. So um, I got my, my husband is, was also an organizer with the Brown Braves and um, he is a social worker now. So he was finishing up his social work degree at San Jose state. And um, I talked to him about it. I said, you want to go? Yeah, I'm from Jersey. I actually grew up in South Jersey. Mm. And uh, so I, I had been to these, you know, I've lived out here before and I asked him if he'd be interested in relocating for a few years. And so I could do this degree and he said yes. And so I came right to Washington, D.C. to go to the UDC School of Law. I entered in the class of 2012. I graduated the class of 2015. I was one of the oldest people in the, in the class. Wow. Um, you know, and the most tattooed. <laughs> and, um, you know, I just, just did that. You know, it was, it was quite an experience. It was, it was horrible. You know, terrifying and stressful and all right. of that but I made it I worked really hard um and you know that's what brought me out here I did the housing clinic I've done housing law in DC uh you have to do 700 hours of clinic to finish a degree at the UDC school law uh, school of law wow. so I did the juvenile clinic juvenile uh education clinic special ed and juvenile discipline I did housing um, I was able to do lots of, um, you know, internships. I worked with the campaign for the fair sentencing of youth show and the campaign for youth justice. So I actually started really focusing on the legal side of youth tried as adults mm. and trying to, uh, you know, it's way different when you're doing the legal work. It's, it's, you know, just more nitty gritty. I would collect data that would then become lawsuits. And I was just, you know, an intern, <laughs> wow. but I was able to, to, you know, sit in these rooms and meet these people. I found that the movement around juvenile justice is just like the nonprofit industrial complex, you know, like mm. the policy people really are like, they definitely do good work. Um, their heart is in the right place, but they're just as competitive and can be almost as petty in some spaces as, um, you know, you would be if you were like, trying to get, you know, a CEO job or, Absolutely. you know, 
competing with people for, you know, some other position. And get so, cutthroat, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it was really, and it's, it's D.C., right? Mm. But, um, you know, I, I, I remained, and um, I still remain here. I ended up, you know, staying here. I was a, after law school, I was an educational uh, attorney, an educational advocate with the Maryland Office of the Public Defender. So I was able to work with the public defenders, which is great. Mm. I still don't do criminal law. I kind of suck at it, probably. Yeah. Um, but um, I definitely love working with the criminal lawyers to mitigate their clients' you know, cases and make their cases a little bit better for them. Right. And I think I did that really well, and they really appreciated me there. It was uh, not a very, again, funded position. I couldn't make a living doing it. Yeah. Um, so I continue to be a consultant to the Maryland Office of the Public Defender, and I also now do some immigration law, mm. and I'm an educational consultant for immigration lawyers. You know, um, anybody that calls me for legal advice, um, you know, especially around youth or children, um, I'll always answer the phone, and mm. I always have time to to listen and, you know, answer some questions. Um, I never got a law degree to to make a lot of money. I got this law degree to really give give it away right Mm. because sometimes it just takes a little just takes a little bit of time to explain something to people or you know look up something and it can just send people in a better direction than maybe where they're going without legal legal um information Mm -hmm. so um that's that's what i was doing i ended up uh, applying for many jobs and coming you know being like the last two you know to to work but i don't not really a great fit for like uh, you know, big nonprofits or big NGOs, like that's not really, you know, they didn't, it just didn't work for them or me, I guess. And I ended up finding a teaching position out here in Maryland. And so, believe it or not, there's a law academy in the school district out here outside of DC. Yeah. And a few of the high schools. And I was able to secure a position um, of teaching social studies in one of these schools. And um, now I'm actually the lead teacher in this law academy, which is called the Justice Law Society Academy. Mm-hmm. And so I'm out here, um, you know, in Montgomery County, Maryland, and I'm teaching in this program and organizing the kids, and they're digging the law. Mm-hmm. I have a lot of, we have a lot of students uh, signing up for these courses mm-hmm. where we have a big law conference coming up in a couple weeks. They've been to the Supreme Court. We've met Sonia wow. Sotomayor. They spent uh, like a good, you know, good 30 minutes just, talking to her about her life. Um, you know, we could go to Congress. I mean, being in D.C. is cool. So I'm trying to, like, the goal here is to put a radical light and a radical political lens on what the, the politics here that people really take for granted. You know, that bipartisan, um, de- democratic, American democratic model. You know, we have to think radically to be able to subvert that. And we have to be politically conscious to be able to subvert that. And California has the political consciousness. Those kids, it's in the water, you know. Mm. But they don't have the proximity to the institutions. Whereas here, we have the proximity to the democratic institutions. I'm literally, my school is literally a 30-minute drive to the Capitol, um, the kids can get on the train any day of the week. They do internships. You know, they just, it's like that's their hood, literally. Um, but they don't have so much of the radical political philosophy or ideology. So I'm trying to bring all of that to 
together. Well, yeah, and I think you're doing it, you know, you're a powerhouse for sure. Um, and going back to the public defender, I've had a lot of public defenders. I wish I had you as a public defender because um, <laughs> most public defenders that I had, they didn't do nothing but try to broker me a deal. I mean, I and it's hard to, you know, and I know there's some good ones, you know, and, and you know, unfortunately, um, there's not enough uh, conscious um, um, people and, you know, uh, there's never probably going to be enough conscious attorneys who are really fighting for the people. And, you know, there, there's some, but there's never going to be enough. So, you know, that's very important that and we, we also have to understand that, you know, within the realm of the courts and the legal system, that there's only so much we can do as well. And so, yeah. you know, we yeah. can do certain things, but we, we, we can't we can't forget that at the end of the day, we're not going to be able to be totally successful and uh, totally free um, through the legal system. So that's something that mm -hmm. we, we, you know, we don't want to forget. But let me, because we're running out of time here, let me just, um, let me ask, what, what are some of the challenges of organizing in the community that you now live in? Because I know here, you know, you're familiar with, you know, you know, California, but over there, you know, there's different, uh, different nationalities. What, what are some of the challenges over there where you're at now? So, um, I guess that the, the biggest challenge I face and we face, you know, my, my husband's also still, we're still, you know, in it, organizing, doing our thing, but, I guess the challenge is the po the radical political con the lack of a radical political analysis, and then a radical political praxis that goes with that. So people here, uh, you know, there's we're more there's not a lot of Chicanos. There's some, and the majority of Chicano organizers here are from California. It's like basically. <laughs> <laughs> like wow. people we might know, you know, the community is big, but it's small. And so that's been kind of a trip. The majority of the Latino out here are from Central America, El Salvador, Guatemala, Honduras, South mm. America. Wow. But I think the biggest challenge with my students, because that's like, you know, where, where I spend most of my time teaching, um, organizing with you know, I guess my students now are much more diverse than in Watsonville. And Watsonville was like Chicano, yeah. Mexicano, Mexica. You know, that was it. And um, a few white kids here and there. But here <laughs> I have, you know, many students from the whole African diaspora. Mm. And they speak two or three different languages. Wow. Many of them are conscious-ish. Like they definitely understand colonization. They definitely understand what that means for their families. There's a reason they're here. You know, right. their families move. Most of my students are the first generation here. They came wow. when they were small from Africa, Guatemala. I teach um, a couple classes of government to ESOL students. Mm -hmm. So the majority of, of those students are, you know, they're maybe one to three years in the country, max. Mm. And they did not grow up with their parents. You know, these are the uh, what we're calling unaccompanied minors under the law. And so I also work with this population in my immigration work because I do juvenile visas. I do special mm. immigrant juvenile visas. That's yeah. pretty much my, that's my law hustle. Mm. And, um, and so with this, this community is so different from the Chicano community because they're just not 
educated or they don't have the same deep political consciousness. You know, mm. their families, their parents, their generations didn't grow up right. on the march, in the movement. Well, they're coming from the third world, right? Huh? They're coming from third world countries. So Really? Yeah, really? So, you know. so true. And, and I can even see a difference, like, in the way they um, relate to their own education. Um, you know, Mexico has... has stellar like universities rich culture very still alive culture you know they haven't had it uh beat out of them literally you know whereas people coming from central america nicaragua guatemala you know the university system is not as developed the school system is not as developed so whereas the parents want for their children to go to school when they get here there's so many degrees of separation between like a child that was raised with their grandmother in El Salvador, mm-hmm. you know, was never with, hasn't met their parents since their parent was, you know, since the, 12 years ago or whatever, since their parent left. The kids yeah. come up here to meet their parents. They, you know, they live with their parents and they're, they're here. They have to work. The parents are working. They might have a new family. And then they don't really know that much they don't know the school of the americas or you know many Salvadorans they do know who um the archbishop oscar romero is mm. there's many children named oscar you know so there's that consciousness um rigoberto Menchu, yes they know who she is you know so there's they definitely know who their heroes are right but the bigger picture and like all the history and all the stories that you really need to be able to like internalize to change and live a different life for yourself and then change your community and that like political consciousness, right? That yeah. fire in the belly. It's, it's almost barely, it's barely existent. Wow. So we're trying to like bring the information in, you know, and, and just teach that like the kids, for example, quick story, kids walked out March 14th for like gun control or whatever. <laughs> and, um, you know, we kind of stopped for a minute, like, okay, who really, how did the walkouts even begin? Who started, what is a walkout? Who started this? So we immediately, like, let's talk about the Chicano student movement. You know, let's look at, like, that footage. And let's really see what those students went through so that you guys could organize your little walkout today, get on the buses and go down to Congress and, you know, be a mouthpiece for the Democratic Party. Which is fine because the kids believed in what they're doing. They were happy about it. They learned to organize. They learned to organize themselves. I'm good with all that. But, you know, what was the difference between what the, you know, the blowout, the 1968 student blowouts and what's different now is that, you know, the blowouts was organic. And that was, that was a necessity. Those kids had to organize that way mm-hmm. or they were going to die in those places, yeah. you know, and they were going to, they had to stop that. And so this is a, it's a very different type of student activism that we see now. And, um, I just try and insert my, you know, my, my fire into it whenever I can, no, however yeah. I can. And absolutely. Like by hanging your artwork on the wall. Oh, for beautiful, beautiful. <laughs> and, and, you know, it, it, I, I think when I hear of communities like that, it, it's very difficult for, let's say, um, some Salvadoreños to go into Pine Ridge and attempt to radicalize mm. Pine Ridge because at the end of the day, um, you're not First Nations and you're Salvadoreño. 
and to go in there and it's very very difficult of course it could be done but it's gonna take years to it's very difficult to and so the i think the 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 thing is the the idea should be for the people of pine ridge to have one of their own that has become politically conscious to go back into pine ridge and to uh you know to raise consciousness and so i think these communities you know um whether they're um haitian whether they're dominican republic whether they're salvadoreño nicoya uh peruviano i think it's going to take people from those nationalities to go in there and to organize within the nation because um it's very difficult like you said they're in survival mode they're not grasping certain things and they're very private they're very protective very cautious and for someone to just come from outside of the community like you said organic some non-organic entity to come in and it's very hard and it's going to take years and years to build that trust in, into and so i think that um you know one of the the ways that that can be effective possibly um is for some of the people from within these communities um to come back into their community um and 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 after they've become politically conscious and work within their communities but you know what we're running out of time and in and, and we got like four minutes left but i wanted to hit you with this question i have a lot of questions i'm not going to be able to ask the rest of them but of course i wanted to hit you with this one what does aslan mean to you huh I mean, the way it's been taught to me, Aslan, is, is it's a unifying concept um, around land and around a common ideology, um, like by the people, for the people. And um, it's about it, it, caring about each other, you know, under like the same, the same principles, right? Mm. Um, I don't know if that's historically what, what Aslan was, but to me, you know, Aslan is a, it's a community, right? It's a, it's a political community. It's a cultural community. And it's, it's a movement towards something, right? Mm. So it's a movement towards um, a better, you know, a better world that is, um, that's, that's not run from above, you mm. know? It's not controlled by, 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 by strings above, but by, you know, from, from the left and, you know, from the left and below to the, from the side and below and up, you know, mm. and that's to me what, you know, what Aslan is. And it's, it's a, it's a goal, you know, mm. it's a history and then it's a goal. Mm. Beautiful, yeah. beautiful words. And, and, you know, um, if, if anybody's interested in, in getting involved in any kind of projects you got going on, um, is there an email or something that people can get in contact with you if they want to get involved with Central American struggles on the East Coast or anything to do with that? Is there any kind of email or anything, any way to yeah. get on it? So my website these days is Education for Autonomy. And I'm just going to pull it up and make sure I get it right because it's education number four autonomy autonomy.info mm. okay. um, so it's education for autonomy.info that's my website yeah I put up little 
projects that I do here and there. I do some student loan consultations also. You know, in order to be free, we got to be as out of debt as possible. So I still have my work up there, some of my writing stuff on education. I focus a lot on education in juvenile halls and jails. Beautiful. Um, and we got one so minute, Jen. Contact me there. And we got one minute. Email is the same. Education for autonomy at gmail.com. Perfect. That's it. And thank you very much, Jen, for, for being our free Aslan. And we'll Thanks, talk Joey. some more. I'll have you, and it was great talking to you after all this time. And, and, and just thank you. I know the people learned a lot. And, uh, and thank, thank you, you very much. And this is, right. uh, is 96.1 FM, KEXU, Poe People's Revolutionary Radio. I'm JV, and you're listening to Free Aslan. Thank you.